You are listening to New Covenant Fellowship. Right, in case you are joining us for the first time or the first time in a long time, let me catch you up as to where we are. We've been discussing the kingdom of heaven, a.k.a. the kingdom of God, which is essentially the, 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 the core teaching in Jesus Christ's ministry throughout the Gospels. He came preaching the kingdom, and the kingdom is the gospel. The good news is that the kingdom has arrived, and Jesus is the king. All right? So we've, we've discussed the kingdom, what it means. We looked at ten parables of Jesus about the kingdom, in which he says the kingdom of heaven is like. So now we know what the kingdom is, we know what it's like, and we've been spending several weeks discussing what it means. Okay, if the kingdom... Of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is the community or territory over which Christ reigns as king. In other words, that's you and me. We are the kingdom if we're followers of Jesus Christ. What does it mean for us to be citizens in the kingdom? What does that look like for us on a day-to-day basis? What kind of implications does that have for us? And so, for the past several weeks, we walked through Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus, the new Moses, prepares a new Israel for life in the new land, the heavenly kingdom. And in that passage, we found that the main thrust, that the main theme is righteousness. And not just an outward, physical, observable righteousness on the surface, but a true inward righteousness of the heart. And we've said over and over and over that in the kingdom, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Now, as we move forward, I'm going to draw out something that we mentioned very briefly. During our time in the Sermon on the Mount, I mentioned briefly that the kingdom of heaven is an upside-down kingdom. It's backwards. It's inside-out. It's very counterintuitive. All right? And that is going to be our main focus, our main theme for the next few weeks as we continue to discuss what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom. Well, what do we mean when we say that? When we say that the kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, what exactly does that mean? Well, it means that in many ways, our views, our thinking, our paradigm, our lifestyle will be complete opposite, polar opposite from those outside of the kingdom. All right? Consider, for example, our king and his entry and his crown and his triumph. When our king rode into the capital city, he didn't ride in on a horse with a sword in his hand. He rode in on a donkey. And he wasn't fitted with a crown of gold and jewels. He was fitted with a crown of thorns. And consider his triumph. They were expecting this king to lead the people of Israel in triumph over their physical, real enemies, namely Rome. But the enemies he triumphed over were very unsuspecting enemies. The scripture tells us that having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So they're anticipating... Jesus, with sword in hand, triumphing over physical enemies by putting them to death, whereas in reality, he triumphed over the religious leaders, the unbelieving religious leaders and their followers, triumphing over them not by putting them to death with the sword, but by being put to death on the cross. And so the Pharisees were over here 
intuitively chalking that up to a win for them. Win for us. Lost for Jesus and his followers. But the kingdom is counterintuitive. That's, that's not a loss for Jesus and his followers. That's a win. Because in the process of shedding his blood, God was through those actions of sinful men making atonement. Reconciling sinners to God. That's not a loss. That's a win. This kingdom is very counterintuitive. It's very upside down. It's very backwards. And last week as we wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at the end of Matthew 7 in which Jesus said, Now, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on rock. But whoever hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is foolish. Like building his house on sand. And so, in short, we said that to heed is to succeed. Well, in an upside-down kingdom, we're going to define success a little bit differently from those outside of the kingdom, right? How, how do those outside of the kingdom who don't bow the knee to King Jesus, how, do they, how would they typically define success? Well, different people would probably define success in different ways, but I think the general consensus would be something like a bigger house, more stuff, more cars, better things, a, a hot wife, or maybe not even a wife, just multiple partners as long as they're hot. Th that's success <laughs> outside of the kingdom, right? In, in very many ways. Well, in the kingdom, in this upside-down kingdom, we define success a little bit differently. And again, different people in the kingdom might define success a little bit differently, but I think we would all kind of be along the same lines in saying that success in the kingdom is knowing God and making God known. That it's obeying the decrees of the king. That it's living a life of faith expressing itself through love. That it's loving God and loving others. That it's doing to others what you would have others do to you. That's success in the kingdom. And to some degree, intuitively, innately, naturally, we're all driven to succeed. We all desire success. And for many, life is a quest to be the best. This is seen at a young age. My kids get in the van and inevitably I hear, click, I win! First, first get my seatbelt on. And then of course, the other kids are like, it's not a race! Well, it's only not a race if you didn't win, right? Nobody wants to be the loser. Everybody wants to be the best. Everybody wants to be the first because outside of the kingdom... Be first is to be first. And this doesn't end when you're five or six years old and putting on a seatbelt. I mean, after all, you see this in every aspect of society. What is the Olympics? Well, it's just a gathering where people just kind of get together and have fun and play games. There's no winners. We just enjoy it. No. People train with their life. Dedicate every moment of every day to becoming the best because they want to stand on the top part of that pedestal with a gold medal around their neck. And what, after all, is American Idol? Oh, it's just a show where we just kind of get together. We like to sing. It's a kumbaya. I mean, we just enjoy. No. I'm the best singer there is, by golly. So I'm going to go on this show so that I can make that clear to America and receive my rightful place as the best, as the greatest, as the American Idol. To, to some degree, we are all driven to succeed. We're all on this quest to be the best to some degree. Well, this desire to succeed, this desire to be the best, is seen in the 
actions and the words of the apostles. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. And if you don't have a Bible either in your hand in, on paper or on your phone, um, you're welcome to grab one from the back there. Jesse can grab you one if you need one. Just raise your hand. Um, anytime you come and don't have your Bible with you, you're welcome to grab one of those and, and take it with you if you don't have one. We'll be in Mark chapter 9. Mark is the second book in the New Testament right after Matthew. We will begin in verse 30. We read, They left that place, this is Jesus and his disciples, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man, referring to himself, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They learned not to do that. Verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. I wonder how that conversation went. No, 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 no. I'm the greatest, because I'm the tallest. No, no, no. I'm the greatest because I'm the oldest. No. Age doesn't matter. I mean, you're just going to die first. I'm the, I'm the greatest because I'm the smartest. No, no, no. I'm the greatest because I've driven out the most demons and performed the most miracles. I'm the great. I wonder how that conversation went. I wonder what their measuring tool was for who was the greatest. And it's interesting when Jesus asked them, Hey, so uh, what were you arguing about on the road back there? Nobody chimed in and said, oh, you know, the normal, we were just arguing about who's the greatest. Who do you think is the greatest, Jesus? No, they didn't say that. I think they kind of knew that this argument was a little out of place for them. I think they had been with Jesus long enough to at least get a glimpse of this upside-down kingdom in which such discussions were out of place. But Jesus takes this moment, seizes the opportunity to teach them. He knew what they were arguing about. He knew. He knew that they were arguing about who was the greatest. So he says, all right, time for a powwow. All right? Let me tell you guys about greatness in the kingdom. Okay? Out there, winner is the winner. First are first, last are last. In the kingdom, in the kingdom, whoever wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Very upside down, very counterintuitive, very backwards from the way that people typically think. After all, first is first. Last is last. Jesus says, that's not how we define greatness in the kingdom. In the kingdom of heaven, last or first, first are last. And that phrase or some semblance of it we see five times in the gospel narratives. This really calls for a paradigm shift in the way that people think. And so right here, Jesus gives them some very profound insight. So they should get it, right? They've got, they've got the word on greatness in the kingdom. All right. So they... They should be good now, right? We should not see any more episodes of them acting this way. Well, 
It's a learning process, much like it would be for you and I. Check out what happens in the next chapter. Flip over to Mark uh, chapter 10. In Mark 10, beginning in verse 35, we read, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, these are two of the twelve apostles, James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him, Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. You ever had anybody do that to you? Like, hey, do me a favor. I'm not going to tell you what it is until you say you'll do it, and then I'll tell you. Like, what? <laughs> Can you imagine? Like, it's coming up to Jesus saying, hey, we want you to do whatever we ask. Jesus' response, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. As I mentioned, Jesus' main ministry, his main teaching was on the kingdom of heaven. So he had taught them over and over and over that he was going to come in his glory, sit on his throne. And so here are these two apostles who come to Jesus, take them away in private because they didn't want the other ten hearing them ask about this, right? Couldn't really figure out who was the greatest. So let's just let's get Jesus aside and let's just settle the matter once and for all, right? Because we know, Jesus, you're going to be king when you come in your power and your glory. And when you do, when you sit on your throne as king, one of us sit on your right. And the other one sit on your left. Because those positions are great. Those are positions of greatness. I mean, the king is the greatest position of all, and that's reserved for Jesus. We get that. But we can at least have like position number two and position number three. So, Jesus, will you do this for us? Will you let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left? And his response, you don't know what you're asking, verse 38. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now, can you imagine if word got out to the other ten that these guys had taken Jesus aside and said, Hey, uh, do us a favor and let one of us sit on the right, the other on the left. How do you think the other ten would feel about this? Well, verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. That means they weren't happy. They, they didn't like it very much. Why? Why do you think they were indignant? Why do you think they were so angry at James and John for taking Jesus aside and saying, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left? Well, because these other ten, they wanted to be great too. They too were on a quest to be the best. They wanted to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. And I thought we already settled this. I'm the tallest and the smartest. I'm the greatest. The nerve of these guys. Going to Jesus behind our back, asking to sit at the right and the left. Well, time for another powwow. Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said... You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, the Gentiles is a word that in their day referred to those outside of Israel, those who were not Jewish or Israelite, were Gentiles. Synonymous with the uncircumcised. The circumcised referred to the Jews, the Israelites. 
He says, you know those who were regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, those outside of Israel, not part of God's covenant community, they lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. That's the way that they rule. That's the way that they exercise authority. We're God's chosen people. They do it that way. Verse 43, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for men. So why did these guys go to Jesus seeking these positions? Well, we've already said that people desire greatness. People are on a quest to be the best. People desire success, and so they're driven in that way. But what are the underlying motives behind that? Why? Why do they want those positions? They want the spotlight. They want the glory. They want a position of power. They want a position of authority. They want lordship over others. I mean, think about it. When you're the boss, you get to boss people around. When you're late to work, you have to answer to the boss. But when you're the boss and you're late, who do you have to answer to? Who's going to question you? Who wouldn't want that kind of power? Who wouldn't want that kind of authority? I had a meeting recently at work with the engineering manager and a few other associates, and we were meeting in the conference room. And we were discussing some things, and it got a little loud, and he especially was getting a little loud. And so I thought, you know, this may be kind of disturbing to the people out there trying to work. So I said, hey, why don't we shut the door right there so that we don't disturb them? And you know what he, you know what he said in response? I'm the manager. They can get over it. You know what that essentially communicates? I'm in the position of power. I don't have to answer to them. They have to answer to me. I don't have to serve them. They serve me. I don't have to be considerate to them, but by golly, they have to be considerate to me. Outside of the kingdom... People's intuitive actions are such that they take a position of power, a position of authority, and use it to their own selfish means, to their own benefit, for their own glory, to the neglect of others. They use their position selfishly and lord it over others. As Jesus put it, you know that those in the Gentiles, those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles, lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Out there, outside of the covenant community of God, they take their position of power and selfishly seek their own glory, their own benefit. It's a self-serving exercise of power. For their own comfort, they feel that they're better than the rest and deserve to be served. They exist to serve me, because I am the best. Look at my title. Jesus says that's how the kingdoms of the world operate, that's how the Gentiles operate, but not so with you. 
If you're going to be my follower, if you're going to bow the knee to me, if you're going to be a citizen in my kingdom, not so with you, because my kingdom is an upside-down kingdom where the last are first, the first are last, and the best, you want to be the best, serve the rest. In the kingdom, the best serve the rest. As a citizen in the kingdom, if I'm the boss, I don't take that position of authority and use it to my own benefit to the neglect of others. I don't use it to seek my own comfort selfishly. Rather, I use my position in such a way that I don't lord it over others, but I position myself under them in such a way to serve them in humility. Rather than seeking what everybody else can do to serve me, I say, what can I do to serve you? How can I come alongside to help you? How can I be a blessing to you? See, out there, in the kingdoms of the world, outside of the, city, outside of the kingdom of heaven, greatness is determined by how many servants you have, how many people you have under you, serving you. But in the kingdom... That's not how greatness is determined. Greatness is determined by how well you and I serve others. In the kingdom, the best serve the rest. You want to be first? Then be the slave of all. Because in the kingdom of heaven, the last are first and the first are last. Now, don't misunderstand this to say that in, in the kingdom... For citizens of the kingdom, we don't have positions of authority, and if we have an opportunity to be promoted, we, we don't do that or anything like that. There are positions of authority for citizens in the kingdom. And in fact, um, when you go through the scriptures, a good place that you can kind of see this detailed is in Ephesians chapter 5. There are those in positions of authority, but there is a radical difference between the way that those outside of the kingdom exercise authority in those positions and the way that you and I, as citizens of the kingdom, are to exercise authority in those positions. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, Paul the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, Wives, submit to your husbands. So husbands are in a position of authority over their wives. But how are they to exercise that authority? Lord it over them? Domineering? No. Continue reading in the text. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See how Jesus died for his bride? You die for your wife. You sacrifice self for your wife. You got a position of authority, this position of headship as a husband? Not like those in the worldly kingdom. Not, the, not like those outside of the kingdom where you get puffed up and say, that's right, I'm the man of this house, you serve me, woman. No. I, as a citizen in the kingdom, serve my wife in love. Keep reading in Ephesians, Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. So parents have a position of authority over children. Well, how are they to ex exercise that authority? Lord it over them? Domineering? No. 
keep reading in the text, Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but instead bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Parents aren't supposed to squash the spirits of their children and rule over them in that way. We are to serve our children, to train them in the Lord, lovingly lead them in the kingdom, the best serve the rest. You want to be great in the kingdom? Be a servant. And then another example that is not as relevant to you and I today, but was definitely in their day, Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, just as you would obey Christ. Well, were, sla- were masters then to rule over their slaves in a domineering way, lording their position over them, whipping them, beating them, being cruel to them? No. Citizens of the kingdom, who happen to be masters of slaves, are addressed thus. Ephesians 6.9 Masters, do not threaten your slaves. Do not threaten them. Treat them in the same way. He goes on to say, And recognize that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Don't exercise authority, lording it over them, domineering in the same way that those outside of the kingdom do. You serve in the kingdom. And what would this look like on a practical level if all of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, if everybody who bows the knee to King Jesus, if everybody who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior were to adopt these principles and live them? If we were all to recognize that we live in an upside-down kingdom and say... Last or first, first or last, if I want to be the greatest, I will be a servant. The best serve the rest. If I were to live that out, if you were to live that out, if everybody in the church worldwide were to live this out in our respective spheres of influence, what would that look like? What kind of an impact would that have on the world? And consider how passionately people pursue positions of greatness. I mean, people go to great lengths to be great, to be the best. Right? In in the work world, in the office, consider how passionately people pursue positions of greatness. I mean, they step on people's heads to climb the corporate ladder. If they need to throw people under the bus in order to do so, make other people look bad, do shady things, underhanded things, Lie, cheat, steal, you name it. They'll do it in order to get there if they are so driven, passionately pursuing the position of great, passionately pursuing success on a quest to be the best. Now imagine if you and I would as passionately pursue the position of great, but not according to the world's definition of success, Not according to the world's definition of great, but according to the kingdom's definition of great. According to Jesus' definition of great, which is to be last, to be slave of all. To be the best is to serve the rest. Imagine if you and I, with reckless abandon, were to passionately pursue the position of best. What would that look like? Well, in the workplace, rather than 
stepping on other people's heads in order to climb the corporate ladder, rather than throwing other people under the bus whenever we get a chance, rather than hopping on the gossip train, rather than chiming in when our co-workers are slandering one another behind one another's backs. We don't hop on the, we don't hop on the gossip train. Squash it. We don't join in in the slander game. We would encourage other, you know what? I know that person. I don't know that they meant to do that to you. I think you should go talk to them. I'll come with you if you'd like. Working with integrity rather than rather than saying, how can I move forward? We would say, how can I serve others? How can I equip others? How can I empower others to also be successful? Because rather than having an I mentality, I have a we mentality, a team mentality. Imagine what, imagine what our supervisors would think. You know, I know that she's a Christian. I know that he's a Christian. And I don't know that I can get behind that whole Jesus thing that's kind of kooky. But you know what? I love having him or her as one of my direct reports. If I had the power to hire, if that's what Christians are, if that's what Christians look like, that's what I want to hire. Shoot, that's what I want my daughter to marry. I mean, I don't, you know, the, the whole faith and, you know, shedding of the blood and all that goofy stuff. I don't know if I can get with that. But if that's the kind of person, if that's the kind of lifestyle that those people live, I want those people to work for me. I want those people to marry my children. That's the kind of impact that I think we would make in the workforce. Imagine what that would look like. Imagine if government officials who happen to be citizens of the kingdom were to live out these precepts of defining greatness by servanthood and understanding that the best serve the rest. I mean, would they be swayed by lobbyists? Or would they do what is good and right and just in the best interest of the community at large, serving the community in their position of power, in their position of authority. The citizens in the kingdom understand that the best serve the rest. What would it look like in the classroom? Because in the classroom, you know, there's that kid that everybody loves to hate, that kid that, that gets straight A's, whether they're, they're just awesome at taking notes or they just get it or whatever. But outside of the kingdom, the intuitive thought process for that student may be something like, so what if they fail? If they can't take good notes, that's their problem, not mine. I mean, shoot. I deserve my grade. I'm going to do my thing over here. Whereas for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, the thought process is counterintuitive. It's upside down. It's backwards. It may say something like, you know what? I noticed that that guy's struggling. And I know that my notes... Uh, excellent. So let me share my notes with this student. You know what? Let me come in a little bit early and take some time to tutor these other students so that they too can be successful. I want to serve others and empower others because for citizens in the kingdom, we understand that the best serve 
the rest. What would it look like for Christians interacting with non-Christians? What would it look like if we lived out these precepts and these principles in our interactions with those outside of the kingdom? Well, we've all probably heard that term, holier than thou, right? And that phrase is generally used to describe the way that somebody comes across, like an air that they have about them that says, I'm better than you. I'm more righteous than you. I'm holier than you. More religious than you. What would it look like if citizens in the kingdom, rather than exuding an air of superiority, were to exercise humility, and rather than coming across like holier than thou, their attitude, and even their words perhaps, are more like, I'm no better than you. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I'll tell you, I have found rest in my soul. I have found peace with God through Jesus Christ. If you'd like, I can introduce you to Him, and you too can become a citizen in the kingdom, being reconciled to God and having a relationship with Him. What would that look like to the world around us? And how would their understanding and view of Christians change if we were all to operate that way? Because as much as we may not like it, damage has been done to the name of Christ, to the name Christian. The citizens in the kingdom were to exercise these precepts, last or first, first or last. The greatest is the servant. The best serve the rest. I think we could have a ripple effect, a domino effect. Uh, we'd be a catalyst for change in the world around us. Now this teaching on greatness is challenging. I mean, Jesus' words are pretty challenging here because it's very counterintuitive. No, 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 first or first, last or last. What is this whole last or first, first or last thing? It's, it's kind of challenging. It requires a paradigm shift. And it'd be one thing if Jesus simply preached these words and no more. It'd be one thing if Jesus simply vocalized this. But Jesus didn't just vocalize this. He mobilized this. He manifested this. He modeled this. He didn't just preach it. He practiced what he preached. And imagine... Imagine the level of humility it would take for somebody in a position like that to come, not to be served, but to serve. I mean, the pervasive thought is that it's generally hard to serve because it requires humility, it requires selflessness, and we tend to be selfish. We tend to be prideful. We all kind of have this sense of entitlement to some degree, right? I'm eight years old. I deserve an iPhone, right? I'm 16 years old. I deserve a car, whichever car I want, and I deserve to have the insurance paid for, right? I deserve to be served. I deserve. I have a sense of entitlement, right? And again, it's to varying degrees. 
And the higher up the chain, the higher up on the pyramid somebody is, I think the harder it becomes to serve. Because the greater the sense of entitlement. Look at my title. Thus look at all the things that I deserve. Right? I mean, you're the man of the house, so you deserve to control the remote. Right? You're the man of the house, you, you get to drink the last Coke, eat the last slice of pizza, you get to determine the, the thermostat. You guys are cold? Put on a blanket, put on more clothes. I am entitled to control these things. To serve requires a heavy dose of humility. And the higher up the ranks, the more humility is required and the harder it becomes to squash that pride and selfishness. To be humble and to serve. Now in the grand scheme of things, who has more authority? Who is higher up on the pyramid than the king? Who is higher up on that pyramid than King Jesus? In Matthew 28, 18, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the one with all authority. I mean, you and I, we think we have authority. We think we have a position of power. We think we have a title. Well, consider Jesus. Consider his title. King of kings. Lord of lords. Lord of heaven and earth. The one with all authority in heaven and on earth. And if anyone deserved to be served, it's Jesus. If anyone should have a sense of entitlement, it's Jesus. Look how he exercised his position of authority. As he said in our text, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, imagine how much humility it would take for the king of kings, the one with all authority, to humble himself and to wash his disciples' feet. Yes, even the one who was going to betray him that very night. How much humility would it take for him to serve in that way. Imagine how much humility it would take for Jesus to undergo the spitting, the mocking, the flogging, the crucifixion, the, the condemnation for that which he did not do, for being charged with wrongs he did not commit. Though he had no sin, he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Imagine how much humility it would take for him to be oppressed and afflicted, yet not open his mouth, and to be led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers, remain silent. Look at the lengths to which King Jesus humbled himself and served. And it'd be one thing if Jesus just preached it. That boy practiced it. 
and look at the length to which he practiced it. Look at the degree to which he modeled this. Went to death. He laid down his life. If the one with all authority would set aside his divine prerogatives, though he deserved to be served, but came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, how much more should we who are way down here on the pyramid, way down here on the chain, how much more should you and I, in humility, set aside pride and serve? How much more should you and I recognize and embrace the kingdom precepts that... The first or last, the last or first, and understand that in the kingdom, greatness is defined by servanthood. And that the best serve the rest. Let us passionately pursue this position of greatness, and let us do so by serving. Amen?